I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In today's episode, I talk about Catholicism and what's different about what we believe versus what others believe. A Chrysler. Yep, it's one of those no laughing days, which is pretty normal of dad joke beginnings, but it is just me, Matt, in studio again. Uh, Please continue to pray for Jenna and her family as they are finishing up and moving into their brand new home. Um, But welcome to episode 42. Today, you may have heard in the intro, we're going to talk about Catholicism, and you might be like, well, I am Catholic, so I'm just not going to listen to this. But I want to encourage you, you might hear something you've never heard before, and we're going to talk a little bit about why some of these things we believe are so different um, from what others believe, um, and maybe illuminate some of the things that you already knew and make them a little bit deeper, or maybe you'll hear something you never heard before. Um, But before we get into that, uh, I just want to share with you briefly my peak pit plug for the week. Um... My peak is that the day this comes out, Saturday, May 4th, Star Wars Day, may the 4th be with you, um, is also the day of confirmation mass at my parish. And so I get to see all the teens that I've had the honor and privilege of journeying with these past two years get confirmed and receive that sacrament. And so um, that's always a really great outpouring of the Holy Spirit and um, really beautiful time to just be with the community at the parish where I work. My pit is at the same time we are... Um, starting our daughter Hannah on more solid foods and trying to get her uh, to start picking things up and eating them herself and she is not about it at all and we've tried all these you know innovative transitional foods and things that dissolve in her mouth and she's still getting used to it so some prayers for that would be appreciated. Uh, and my plug um, is, and it was another peak moment for me this past few weeks, um, my plug is a podcast called Home, Where Faith and Family Meet. And that podcast, uh, one of the hosts is my spiritual director, Father Tim Donovan, and the other host, an awesome woman named Pam Hurwitz. And they uh, basically, they interview families every single week uh, and have a discussion about what family life looks like, what faith looks like in the home. Uh, and then they all do a reflection on the readings for that upcoming Sunday. And so it's a nice way to kind of prepare for Mass during the week, but also to hear about, um, you know, how how other families uh, live out their Catholic faith. And so that's called Home, Where Faith and Family Meet. And you can listen to that on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. But today, uh, we're going to talk about that faith in very general terms, um, in the sense that Catholicism is very big, very vast, 2,000 years rich of history and tradition um, founded by Jesus Christ and uh, rooted in Scripture. Uh, And so we obviously can't talk about absolutely everything that the church teaches or that we believe as Catholics, but there are some core principles, uh, things that we believe as Catholics that are uh, something you might find uh, pretty surprising, pretty stark indifference to other denominations of Christianity. Um, And I think that's an important thing to to point out is the reason I wanted to do this episode is because we live in a world where a lot of people kind of have the belief of, um, oh, you believe what you want, I'll believe what I want, and that's your truth, that's my truth, and, you know, it's, it all points the same way anyway. Um, and there is a sense that we know in faith that, you know, there are um, slivers of truth or chunks of truth in other religious traditions. They, you know, um, there's not, you know, probably not one full 100% distortion of um, who God is and who Jesus is. Um, even Satanism acknowledges um, that God and Jesus exist. Um, however, um, over time, the revelation of God got confused with um, personal revelation or private revelation or just disagreements and distortions of that original truth. And so over time, branches began to fork off. And so there's still truth in the foundations of some of those religions, but um, they're very different. All of them are very different. Um, there's a Christian apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias, and he, he always says, most people think that um, most religions are fundamentally the same and superficially different. But in reality, um, religions are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. And that is especially true of Catholicism. And so when we look at Catholicism, you'll see the, some of these core differences are, you know, stark 
stark differences um, from other religious traditions. And so um, I want to encourage you to um, kind of look at those things and um, and remember that this isn't just like a kind of pick what your pick your poison, pick your flavor, pick what you know. Um, is easiest or um, most appealing to you. It's really a decision of what is true, what makes the most sense, what did Jesus reveal to us, um, and really making the decision from there. And so um, I don't know if I've ever shared this on the podcast, but I, I like kind of starting this by talking about, well, it's great to be Catholic, but why why be Catholic, and why personally am I Catholic? I'm Catholic because when I was in high school, I was definitely searching for something bigger than myself, um, but searching for it in all the wrong places. And two weeks before my high school graduation, my best friend passed away tragically, drowned um, in Lake Arrowhead where I grew up. And I was there when it happened. I pulled him out of the water. And um, that was a very, obviously, traumatic moment in my life, but really put into perspective at a young age that, um, you know, my life could be taken at any moment. And to really reconcile some of these hungers I had about what was greater than me, what was out there, if God was real, if he existed. And also the sense that um, I wasn't taken. You know, I, very well, I was doing the same thing of swimming in colder water. Um, you know, I was with him, so there's no reason why it couldn't have been me. And so recognizing that um, I was still here for some purpose and to figure out what that was. And so that led me on a journey of a lot of different faith traditions. I belonged to a lot of different churches over the span of two years, while at the same time uh, helping um, serve as a musician in the Catholic Church where I grew up uh, as they were starting a a youth ministry mass and program. And so um, as I was going to all these other churches, um, you know, earlier in the day on Sunday or on Saturdays or other times in the week, interviewing people, um, starting to become a member, uh, asking questions, all those different things, I started coming up against things that just didn't make sense or uh, warnings that cautioned me from digging deeper. And to me, as someone who was really seeking truth, uh, that was a big red red flag, alarm bell. And so um, I kind of ended up eliminating everything else that could have possibly made any sense as being where truth resided or having an accurate idea of who God was and how to be in relationship with him. And I had left Catholicism to the end because I grew up Catholic and I hated growing up Catholic. I didn't like, you know, or understand anything about the church. And as I had been serving, um, I started getting invited and just um, people were building relationships with me and being very hospitable and understanding and meeting me where I was at. And that paired with all of my questions getting answered in a way that logically made sense with science and history and reason and faith, and also being encouraged to ask more questions. And people in the church not being afraid of me finding the answers, you know, really being like, go, go find it. You'll find it. You know, it's out there. We have answers for everything. I may not know it, but it it exists. In no other faith tradition was I encouraged to do that. Um, It was either um, superficial answers or don't look for that answer. We don't ask that question or somewhere in between. And um, I was not satisfied by that. And so the truth really convicted me in Catholicism, seeing that it was good in the people that I encountered and the service that the church does, which we'll talk a little bit about, but also seeing that the church is beautiful. You know, the church has a rich tradition of art, of music, of architecture, of story, of saints, holy men and women who rose up and um, stood for something that the majority didn't appreciate at certain times in history. Um, and just the beauty of the gift of salvation that's offered to us freely in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's so much richness in that, and you shouldn't believe anything if it's not beautiful, if it's not good, and if it's not true. And all these things that we'll talk about, we won't have time to talk about why each one of them is those things, but I think if you dig deeper and if you really meditate and reflect on, on why, you'll find those answers very easily. So as Catholics, what do we believe? Where does all this start? Well, Catholicism is a hierarchical religion that's based um, in the office of the Pope in his place of residence, which is in uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, And so that is the central um, kind of hierarchy of where our church is. But the central belief of what our church is, is basically um, God exists. He exists as a trinity in three persons, one God. Persons not meaning three separate gods, but the original um, Greek word hypostasis used to describe that meaning ways of being. Uh, And so God having these three ways of being or interacting with us simultaneously always 
Always God, always present in these three ways, as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Three persons, ways of being distinct from one another, but all God, all one God. We believe that. We believe that God created us, created us out of love, in dignity, to be in relationship with him. And yet we broke that relationship by our sin. And so he came in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us with him and to invite us into relationship with him and to trust him and to accept the free gift of salvation that he won for us on the cross. And through the church that he set up and guides by the sending of his Holy Spirit, we can continue to experience that relationship with him and receive the grace through the sacraments that he instituted as we live our faith in serving others, in going on mission, sharing, promoting, defending our faith, and helping, as I said, with the needs of others, uh, caring for one another, and loving the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. That is the core belief of Catholicism, and it's the core belief, really, of all Christianity. But when we look back at how Jesus revealed how he wanted himself to be perpetually in relationship with us and how he wanted to start a church and the specific things that that church practices and believes, uh, we see very stark differences uh, among Christianity develop immediately when we look at that. And so as I was saying, um, our church, the, the leader of our church, we'd probably say is God, obviously, in, in the Holy Spirit, but on earth is the Pope. And our current Pope is Pope Francis. He is the 266th uh, Pope, uh, successor of St. Peter, in an unbroken line of popes leading all the way back to Jesus himself when he uh, instituted the church on the foundations of Peter as rock, as um, the first Pope. And so that um, is centralized now in the world in Vatican City, the smallest country in the world, um, and where St. Peter's Basilica is in Rome and has been, uh, you know, for the past 500 years or so. Uh, And so the Pope, he uh, can speak infallibly on matters of faith and morals, but he is not infallible. He goes to confession every week, and uh, it is not very often that he uses that ability to speak infallibly on faith and morals um, on his own. Um, And so you can read more about that. Um, But under him are the cardinals. They're called the princes of the church. And the College of Cardinals, its special role is to um, convene anytime there is a council called or any large gathering, um, but also to um, elect the next pope when a pope passes away or now resigns, which is something that hadn't happened in hundreds of years until Pope Benedict XVI uh, resigned. And so uh, below that, we have bishops, Bishops are, um, their name means overseer, and so they oversee a diocese. A diocese is the Catholic word for an area or a county, Um, but some dioceses are a whole state. Like, you know, um, less populated states like Wyoming, the whole state is probably one diocese. Whereas all of just Orange County, where I live, is one diocese in California. And so it kind of depends on population, on area, on availability of, of priests and people, number of churches, things like that. Um, and so we have three bishops in Orange County. We have a, um, a bishop who is the head bishop, Bishop Kevin Van, and then he has two auxiliary or assistant bishops, um, Bishop Timothy Fryer and Bishop Tong Tai Nguyen. Um, and so they oversee um, the, the diocese and serve as uh, shepherds of all of the priests in the diocese. In our diocese, then, we have uh, 62, maybe up to 65 parishes, centers, and chapels, depending on how you count them. Um, and each one of those has one or more priests assigned to it. And a priest is a uh, man who takes vows of uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience um, to serve the church and basically be married to the church and to serve in that role to administer the sacraments. Um, Every bishop is a priest. Every cardinal is a priest. Every pope is a priest. Um, And so any uh, priest who is ordained um, and receives the sacrament of holy orders, you need that first to then receive one of those later titles. Um, there are three degrees of the sacrament of holy orders. Um, priest and bishop are the latter two. Um, and then there's also deacon. And a deacon can, um, every priest who is going to become a priest is ordained a deacon first. 
and they have a transitional deacon year where they kind of learn how to serve as a deacon, uh, and then they become a priest. However, you can also have permanent deacons who are married um, or single, but typically they're older married men whose kids are grown, and they want to serve the church in a special way. And so they uh, become a deacon, and they can do that as a married person, and they also receive the sacrament of holy orders. But the fullness of that sacrament it's, you know, one step higher with priest, and then the fullness of holy orders, the fullness of the priesthood is in the bishop. And so uh, priests oversee a church. The head priest is called the pastor of a church. Um, an administrator, if you ever hear that title, that's basically um, a kind of trial run pastor. So if you're first named pastor, you're normally called an administrator because you're kind of doing it um, on a on a, a tentative basis, and you can be removed immediately if they need to. A pastor is almost like someone who gets tenure. They then have like canonical rights that you can't just remove them for no reason, um, or without a valid reason. Um, and so, um, and then there's also parochial vicars, which are then assistant priests at the parish. Uh, and then priests might also serve in different offices at the at the diocese. So they might be a uh, a vicar, uh, meaning a uh, stand in the place of, so they might be uh, someone who can stand in the place of the bishop, a vicar general or a vicar forain, they all have different roles. Um, they might be in charge of vocations for their diocese, like in charge of a specific office, or they might be a chaplain at a Catholic school or at a Catholic chapel um, or something like that. Um, and so there are a lot of different ways in which those priests can um, serve. Um, there's also retired priests who just live in residence with other priests and still say mass every now and then. Um, priests who just live in residence at a parish but have a special role elsewhere, um, and they can say mass there, um, you know, different ways that um, those priests can serve. But that's kind of how our church is organized in terms of the ordained um, men who serve in the church. And then in terms of the uh, women and other men who serve in the church, we have sisters, we have nuns. Nuns are normally cloistered. They kind of live in community on their own. Sisters have some type of apostolate out in the world. Maybe they serve in a hospital or an orphanage or, some, or a school or something like that. Um, and we have brothers and monks and um, religious. Um, both of those, um, male and female, those consecrated religious, they also take vows, um, but they don't receive a sacrament. There's no sacramental ordination for them. They just take formal vows to dedicate their life to that specific office in the church. And then you can also, as a layperson, married or single, become what's called an oblate or a third order, where you join maybe a religious order, but you do it as a layperson. And so you adopt some of their spiritual practices. You pray the liturgy of the hours. Um, you commit to doing that, maybe going to daily mass or a holy hour every day or every week. Um, certain things that you promise to do on behalf of praying for the church or for that particular community um, and helping live out the spirituality of that community in wherever you work, wherever you serve, or, uh, whatever family situation you live in. Um, and so we have a lot of different roles within the church. That, when you compare that to a lot of other faith traditions, pretty much eliminates almost all of them, except for the Orthodox Church, um, in terms of Christianity at least, or the Orthodox Church, um, Lutheran, some Lutheran branches, Episcopalianism, um, Anglicans, and then from there it gets a little fuzzier, um, and there are far less roles like that. Um, and there are some similarities in names, but a different type of role um, in the Church of Latter-day Saints, in the, in the Mormon Church, where they also use words like priest and bishop, but they mean different things, different roles. Um, but there are also, you know, certain titles that people have. But um, apart from that, most other religions don't have that um, system, and most other religions don't have a centralized hierarchy. I don't know if you realize this, but sometimes it's hard for people to really pin down what religions believe, and that's why relativism, that idea that like, oh, I can believe whatever I want because there's so many different types of belief, it really didn't start with secularism. It started within religions first. Um, for the most part, that you can go to a certain religion, you know, non-denominational Christianity, and interview, you know, 60 pastors, and they'll tell you all different types of theology. They might have a core belief in common, but when you start asking very detailed questions or about specific teachings, they're going to fork all over the place because there's no centralized doctrine or dogma written any, anywhere. There's no centralized way of interpreting all of the different ways that what Jesus taught applies to things in the modern world. Um, and so there's very few religious traditions that are hierarchical that still exist. Um, Islam is not. Judaism is not. Um, and so you have Catholicism, 
Um, you have um, some versions, uh, some sects of the Orthodox Church who still um, see the Patriarch of Constantinople as their, their hierarchical leader. Um, Scientology, Christian Science, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are uh, probably the only ones that I know of, and the Anglican Church, um, only ones that I know of that you can trace, you know, there is a person in charge, and then from there, every place believes the same thing, and every, um, you know, person who ministers or teaches at each individual church or, you know, wherever, however they organize is the exact same thing. Um, and so that really whittles down. If Jesus was going to reveal to us his truth in any concise way, he would probably do it in a way that makes so much sense that anyone could come together and agree upon it. And there was a you know centralized way of interpreting it. So we all knew and were clear on how to interpret what Jesus said collectively. And when you look at all those ones that I listed, what is the oldest and the only one linked to Christ himself? The Catholic Church. And so sometimes people will look at the hierarchy of the church and see it as an institution or an organization to be um, hesitant toward or a patriarchy. Um, But to recognize um, how much the church values both men and women and their roles um, of equal importance, how we set up the church in a very specific way, points very much to the revelation of his truth through Catholicism. And that's a really beautiful gift that we uh, tend to take advantage of, I think, or pass over. Um, And so that's how our church is organized. But as Catholics, those of us who belong to that church, uh, what is it that we are asked of? What is asked of us? What is it um, meant for us to do or believe? There is a list of things called the precepts of the church. I don't know if you've heard this, but it used to be a list of five, and now it's kind of evolved to six or seven, depending on the list that you find. So I'll tell you all seven. But these are kind of the things that are asked of every single person who calls himself Catholic has to abide by these simple things. Um, And so number one, to attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation. That is a priority for us because that is how we receive the Eucharist. That's how we're in relationship with God. That's how we identify as Catholics, as a community when we come together every single week. Um, So to attend Mass. Uh, Number two, to observe the days of abstinence and fasting. And those um, have really been whittled down to only be confined to the season of Lent. However, they used to be a whole lot more um, populated throughout the entire year. Uh, But we still are asked to do those things if we are of the right age and of the medical and health, uh, healthy ability to do so. Uh, Number two or three, to confess our sins to a priest at least once a year. Um, We are asked to go to confession at least once a year, Um, and primarily during the Lenten season, because number four asks us to receive the Eucharist at least once a year in the Easter season. And so if we're going to receive the Eucharist in a state of grace, we need to make sure we go to confession. So that normally happens the season prior to Easter, which is Lent. Um, And so, uh, and then the fifth, to contribute to the support of the church in our time, our talent, or our treasure, uh, and or our treasure. So serving in ministry in some way, tithing, uh, things like that. Those are the simple things asked of every Catholic. Um, Very similar if you know the five pillars of Islam, or if you um, hear of any of, you know, other kind of summary of beliefs. Very similar. Uh, Not a lot is asked of us. And I think when people look at the rich tradition of Catholicism from a skeptical point of view, they see a lot of rules, regulations, history, things that they just kind of want to pass over. And to recognize, and I'll talk about this with our saint at the end, but um, God doesn't ask that we need to know all of that. And he doesn't ask that we need to wholeheartedly uh, believe and understand and completely accept all of that to identify as Catholic um, or uh, to be saved, to receive salvation. This is merely the fullness of the truth that he has revealed. And I say merely, obviously, that's, you know, it merely isn't anything small. Like, that's a beautiful gift that we have. But to recognize that simply to accept the gift of salvation through the church that Jesus himself uh, created and set forth and recognizing the gift that he gave us of himself on the cross, that's the core belief that gets us where we want to go. And then when we really dive into that and we're really seeking truth in a given situation, yes, the church has this rich history and tradition that we can draw on that's rooted in Scripture um, and in the person of Jesus himself and what he taught us. And so recognizing that is very important. So those were the original five precepts of the church. To attend Mass, to observe the days of fasting and abstinence, confess once a year, receive the Eucharist once a year, and contribute to the support of the church. Very, very, very like bare minimum basic stuff.
in recent years, and I mean probably the, the past 30 or 40 years, two others have been circulated or added to these lists. Um, and one of those is to obey the laws of the church concerning matrimony, and secondly, to participate in the church's mission of evangelization of souls. And so it's asked of us to be prepared to share our faith um, to other people who might be searching um, to live out our faith as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And then because of the more complicated um, legal system when it comes to marriage and seeing marriage civilly as different than marriage sacramentally and all of the things that are asked of us um, or um, required surrounding things like annulments and things like that, um, the church added also that, um, that law to obey the, the laws or practices of the church concerning matrimony. Um, most people don't know this. When you are baptized, you are then bound by canon law in the Catholic Church to get married in the church. Most people don't know that um, because it does mean something different to be married sacramentally. And if you're a baptized Catholic and you get married outside of the church, that is grounds for an annulment. Like you're, you're basically setting yourself up for an annulment. It's called lack of form. It's one of the primary ways that annulments happen in the church is because it lacked the proper form to be a sacramental marriage, which you or your parents promised on your behalf at your baptism. Um, and so um, those are the precepts of the church and kind of why they're there, um, seven of them. And maybe it's because they wanted it to become the magic seven, which is the magic number in Catholicism, um, because uh, next we have seven sacraments. Um, very few other churches still practice all seven of these. Uh, Episcopalianism does. Um, and then certain versions or certain uh, practices of other churches might in Lutheranism, uh, the Orthodox Church does, um, Anglicanism might, but, you know, they're all distortions are no longer considered valid except those in the Orthodox Church. Um, and those seven sacraments are baptism. We do practice infant and adult baptism, um, and at that moment, you know, committing ourselves to the Lord and becoming part of the family of God, um, and recognizing that we want our souls to be saved and accept that free gift of salvation, but still needing to practice what we need to to acquire it on a or not acquire it, but to um, have actions that are justified in deserving it after we have accepted it. Um, <clears throat> We have to do that after. It's not just um, once you're baptized, you're saved, or once you commit your life to Jesus, you're saved, which is very different from a lot of other denominations of Christianity. Uh, on top of that is confirmation, when we receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a special way, giving us the gifts and talents, um, the mission that uh, we have to promote, defend, and share the Catholic faith in whatever avenue of life God calls us to um, through those gifts. Uh, we have the Eucharist, which God gave us, uh, which Jesus gave us at the Last Supper, institutes um, a new Passover where we are to commemorate and receive his actual body and blood. We don't believe that that's a symbol. We do believe that the substance of, of the bread and the wine changes into the substance of his body and his blood, and we receive that as a nourishment spiritually, as a way to be intimately in relationship with God, um, and as the way that he perpetually offered us after he left to be in relationship with him through the Eucharist and through the Holy Spirit that continues to guide the church. Um, reconciliation, when we are in a state especially of mortal sin, which is the uh, highest degree of sin, lesser sins are called venial sins, um, we um, are considered so severed from relationship with God and from the body of Christ as a whole that we need to return to the body of Christ in the representative of the priest, representative not only of Christ himself, but also of the community to reconcile ourselves back in right relationship because of how severe mortal sin can be. Um, and so God offered the sacrament of reconciliation. Jesus instituted that when he institutes the church in St. Peter. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Gives that authority to Peter and later the other apostles and all the priests that are then ordained from that point forward um, to do that. The sacrament then of anointing of the sick is one of those, uh, another sacrament of healing along with reconciliation. The previous ones are sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. And so the other sacrament of healing, anointing of the sick for anyone in danger of death, undergoing any type of um, emergency procedure or, you know, upcoming medical procedure or anyone with any persistent illness or um, disease is free to receive that sacrament, um, sacrament of healing and restoration. Um, usually accompanied, uh, especially if people are terminal or in risk of death, usually accompanied by um, what's called last rites or the viaticum, or the, um, which are the sacraments all of anointing of the sick, reconciliation, and Eucharist all combined. Um, 
And then we have the sacraments of vocation or service, um, and they are the sacrament of matrimony, which we've talked about, and the sacrament of holy orders, which we've talked about. And so those seven sacraments, there are scriptural roots to all of them where Jesus institutes them. He talks about the importance of baptism when he uh, does the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, you know, he sends the fire of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Um, and in Acts um, chapter 8, later on, when people are baptized, they need the apostles to come and, con- and confer the Holy Spirit because they'd only been baptized, is what it says. Um, Jesus institutes the Eucharist, as I said at the Last Supper. He institutes uh, reconciliation with St. Peter and later with the rest of the apostles. Uh, he talks about a man being cleaved to his wife and leaving his father and mother and then being one flesh in the sacrament of matrimony. Um, there's the laying on of hands uh, in the early church by, the, uh, by Peter and the apostles to the early deacons and, and them set forth, you know, from that point forward for other priests and that ordination aspect. And then there's uh, practices of anointing of the sick talked about in James um, and, and in other places where they um, use oils or different prayers uh, to try and heal those who are ill. And so all of those, um, you know, come from scripture. They come from Jesus himself. Uh, Another list of seven is the seven aspects of Catholic social teaching. This is a big arm of the church that's normally not talked about as heavily. We um, tend to come from a tradition that's very um, heavy in, you know, what we believe um, instead of what we practice, because the church has always done a really good job, I think, of practicing uh, service to the poor and helping other people, um, at least in, in many recent years. But ever since the Protestant Reformation, I think there's been a heavier emphasis on teaching what we believe, because there are now people who believe something different. Whereas we should all be caring for these seven things um, of helping other people. And so um, those things are, uh, number one, that each person is sacred, and so we are called to protect the dignity of human life um, and of every person. Um, there's also a calling, the second one, to participate um, in the in the um, protection of the family and community and promoting that. And so recognizing that the family is the building block of society, and if the family falls, then society falls. And you see the prevalence of crime or um, violence among people who don't have um, both parents in the household, primarily their fathers in the household. They're more um, sociologically or behaviorally inclined to uh, lean toward those types of violent acts, and that's been proven. Um The third is um, recognizing the rights and responsibilities of every person. Um, And so our responsibility is to respect those rights, to fight for them, especially those um, who um, are being taken advantage of um, with, you know, unfair um, treatment around the world who don't have access to their normal, their um, just foundational liberties um, and to work for the common good. Um, Fourth, um, to care for those who are poor and vulnerable. Um, So... You often hear the preferential option before the poor, or for the poor, um, and to make sure we care for them before all else. That before we're checking if we're provided for, we're making sure that those who are, um, you know, that have nothing have something. Um, fifth, um, to make sure that we are advocating for the dignity of labor and work, that people have a fair and just wage. Um, Sixth, solidarity, that we practice that when there's um, corruption or uh, suffering, uh, especially among um, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, that we um, recognize our responsibility to help, to pray, to advocate for issues that are affecting them, and um, advocate for any change that we can make on our own level legally here in our country, or just awareness um, for aid or for prayer or for support from other people. And then lastly, to care for creation that we were given uh, from the very moment of the creation of Adam and Eve, given the care of the stewardship of creation, uh, that we have the dominion over all um, of creation and that we need to um, do that respectfully. And so as Catholics, those are the seven elements of Catholic social teaching and everything that we believe about being pro-life, about serving the poor, about making sure people have fair housing and a just wage and that they have clothing and food, all of that comes from these. You may not know this, but the Catholic Church is the most charitable organization in the entire world. And a lot of people sometimes will poke at the church, you know, recently with the whole fundraising for the rebuilding of Notre Dame. And people were like, oh, why won't that money go to the poor? And the reality is it will. 
you know, all of the people that come to Notre Dame and they pay for gifts in the gift shop or they make donations or they come on pilgrimage. Um, you know, it's important to have these places where people are elevated so that they, um, they're elevated to that relationship with God, but also so it continues to become a funneling of funds for the poor. You know, if the church were to melt off all of its precious items and just sell it for one bulk price, then yeah, you'd have one huge lump sum, but it would be whittled away at over time and it would probably be spent a lot faster than people realize. But if we keep these places open, not only for worship and to continue to connect people to something bigger than themselves, to um, call them to just be happier and better people, we're also creating continued avenues for people to support the poor on an ongoing basis and not just one lump sum or one check. Um, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and so um, what's another thing that we believe as Catholics um, that might be different from other people? Well, we believe in the existence of heaven and hell and also a place called purgatory, um, which I'll talk a little bit about. Um, but we believe that heaven and hell are not necessarily physical places, but they are states of being. And so heaven is perfect union with God, completely purified of all sin or the effect of any sin uh, in the presence of God in his fullness, um, in beholding the beatific vision of the reality of who he is and being in complete union, peace, love, and joy with him for all eternity and all the other faithful, the saints, Mary, all those who have died in faith and um, have been purified to enter heaven. Um, hell is the opposite of that. It is complete separation from God, complete darkness, complete loneliness. Um, you know, it's not like, um, you know, a bunch of people in one place with all this fire. In fact, in Dante's Inferno, Dante depicts the lowest level of hell uh, where the devil resides as being a frozen lake of ice because it's complete isolation. Now, that is obviously a work of fiction, but that is an accurate description of what we really believe about the state of hell. It's a place of complete isolation. And in heaven, uh, you know, there are the angels. We believe in a, a hierarchy of angels, nine choirs of angels that all have specific roles in um, creation or um, interacting with humanity. Um, the upper choirs, the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones are um, at the throne of God and by whom other beings or angels um, can um, interact with God. And they sing the praises of God. They um, worship at his throne. Um, the uh, second choir of angels, a rung lower than that, <clears throat> the um, dominions, the virtues, and the powers. Um, they control, um, you know, lower classes of angels. They um, put things into motion in the universe. They battle uh, evil at the darkest, um, you know, or the edges of the universe where matter begins to take shape. Um, and they um, kind of are responsible for the cosmological ongoings um, of, of the universe. Um, and then the lowest rung of angels are the ones that interact most frequently with us, principalities, archangels, and angels. Principalities are um, angels that are in charge of a given area or place. Um, and so they are meant to protect a, uh, a city or a town, almost like the... Um, we all have guardian angels, which are that lower class of angels. Um, every city or geographical place has a principality, um, in a sense, as its guardian angel. And then the archangels are a group of traditionally seven, but we only have three of them named in Scripture, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. Um, a group of angels um, that sometimes can belong to other choirs, but have chief roles in um, exercising the messages um, or delivering the messages or will of God uh, in very special circumstances. And so St. Michael obviously defeats Satan. He uh, was considered um, by tradition as being Jesus's guardian angel. He is the captain of the, um, the army of the angels. Uh, St. Raphael had a very special role in uh, walking with Tobit, um, in the, or Tobias in the book of Tobit. Um, and then uh, Gabriel, obviously, with the Annunciation, and um, Mary, and having that special role in letting her know um, that plan that God had for her. Um, and then angels, as I said, are the guardian angels, um, the angels that, the angel means messenger, so if anyone ever claims to have an experience of an angel or a vision of an angel, it's probably that lowest choir of angels. Um, and in hell, there are also, you know, the devil and his demons, and they also, you know, interact with humanity in the opposing ways, seeking to destroy humanity instead of being in connection with God. <clears throat> and there are um, different levels of demonic, you know, uh, classification or, um, um, what is it called? spiritual warfare or demonic involvement, um, you know, uh, demons can um, tempt, they can oppress, 
They can um, cause one to be obsessed, you know, with um, things that are dark or um, of the occult or obsessed with sin or things like that, um, more of addictive natures of things. Uh, they can infest um, an object or a place. Um, they can possess um, which is when someone is actually possessed. That's uh, one of the highest forms of demonic activity. And the highest is um, they can integrate, where someone willfully um, allows themselves to be um, taken over by a demon. And that's normally practiced in, in the Church of Satan or in Satanism. Um, and so both of those forces exist in, uh, in a reality we cannot see, but sometimes we have some interaction of. Um, you hear people talk of ghosts, um, and I always tell people, well, um, we do believe in the existence of the supernatural and in spiritual realities. And so if you have a, um, an interaction with uh, a spirit that is very good and warm and beautiful, you're probably interacting with an angel or someone in heaven. If it's the opposite, very evil, very um, you know alarming, then probably interacting with a, um, an evil spirit uh, or the devil. Um, but then there's this middle category of um, sometimes people just see these sad, wispy spirits. And I think that has to do, theologians, theologians also estimate that has to do with purgatory. Uh, purgatory is a place, as I said, that um, in, in heaven we are purified of the effect of sin. But that doesn't happen when we die. You know, we're not in that state when we die. And so there are many places in scripture, um, I'll refer to all these in the show notes, um, where you can um, hear where, you know, nothing unclean can enter heaven, as it says in Revelation. Um, and um, we will only be saved as through fire, as it says in Corinthians. Um, and so those are um, logical pointers to that middle state or a place that has to happen before we enter heaven where we can be purified. And we don't know what that's like. There might be a reliving of our life, um, times that we um, experience sin or the effects of sin uh, by our own hand or someone else's. And that interaction with uh, that part in our life or maybe a geographic place where that thing happened might be our perception of ghosts or spirits where we see these people who might be souls in purgatory. Um, and so regardless, if you ever have um, one of these experiences, I would say just pray. If it's a really great experience of an angel, pray in thanksgiving. If it's an experience of something really, really evil, pray to be delivered from it. Or if it's an experience of one of these souls in purgatory as a quote-unquote ghost, then pray for their soul that they may enter heaven more speedily. Um, and so we believe those things about the afterlife. Um, and it's, it's um, believed by us, by the nature of our free will as Catholics, that God does not send us any of these places. We're not predestined or commanded to go any of these places. Whereas God cooperates with our will in terms of our eternal destiny. And so wherever we are in relationship with him in life, that is where we will be in relationship with him in death. He offers us every opportunity, every chance to accept his salvation. But if he deems it respecting to us, if we didn't want to have anything to do with him in life and knowingly, consciously reject him, he's not going to force our hand. And so our actions are what causes us. Um, to go to those places. Um, and he does not want to force anyone to love him or else that wouldn't be real love. That's why we have free will in the first place. And that's why suffering and ex evil exist because we can always choose the opposite of that love. And so uh, what do we do here on earth uh, to know those things that will lead us to heaven? Well, uh, we receive what we believe as Catholics and how to practice those beliefs um, through scripture and sacred tradition. Now, most other Christian denominations believe only in Scripture um, and uh, sola scriptura, the authority of Scripture alone. We believe in Scripture, but also in sacred tradition, because Scripture was sacred tradition for about 350 years. The Bible as we have it now was not assembled until the 390s. Uh, that's a long time after uh, Jesus. And a lot of the things, uh, the earliest things that were written of the New Testament were not written until about 15 or 20 years after Jesus died. And so tradition, if you negate tradition, you're negating Scripture. And it says in Scripture in several places, primarily in 2 Thessalonians and in Galatians, um, to respect the tradition and not to deviate from it no matter what anyone says. Even if an angel of God comes, as it says in Galatians chapter 1, comes to tell us something different than Jesus revealed and that his apostles revealed, um, then that one should be accursed. And to recognize, like, we, we are the only church that points back to that line directly to Jesus Christ, that we hold that... Uh, tradition so dear and so close, not because scripture isn't enough, but because Jesus gave us both. You know, we had only tradition until he allowed through the guidance of the Holy Spirit that to manifest in the form of sacred scripture. 
uh, combined with the Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament. Um, And so uh, we have many different ways that we can study Scripture. Um, We study Scripture in many layers. We don't read Scripture just literally, as many other denominations do, but we look for the original language, history, context, culture. Um, We have many, you know, uh, great footnotes and translations and cross-references and resources to dive further into Scripture. Um, You know, we have commentaries, uh, concordances, biblical dictionaries, um, all these different things to help us understand um, more... Uh, true to the original context, what Jesus was saying. Um, And so the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church, um, comprised by hundreds of theologians, philosophers, linguists, scripture scholars, um, all these people, um, part of what they do is make sure that we have the most accurate understanding of what is in scripture in our translation and our interpretation of it. Um, And so uh, as Catholics, we use primarily two translations of scripture. We use the New American Bible, and now there's the Revised Edition, which is the most up-to-date. And that's what we use to proclaim at Mass. It's a very good study Bible. It's very readable. It has great footnotes. Um, But the most accurate translation that we use for all of our theology and that the Catechism quotes uh, for all of our doctrinal teachings is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, And so those are the two. I think we also acknowledge the validity of the New Jerusalem Bible, but it's not used for any particular purpose other than just another translation that's good. But uh, you'll see a lot of different things out there. King James Version, uh, New International Version, Contemporary English Version um, are some of the popular ones. The NIV, CEV, KJV, those are all those um, um, abbreviations. Uh, The New American Standard Bible, um, which is very similar um, uh, to the name of the Catholic one, the New American Bible, um, all of which are, are different translations, normally given for a specific purpose. The King James Version, it was not meant to be accurate. It was meant to be poetic and beautiful sounding, which it is, Um, but it is very inaccurate in the original meaning um, of a lot of the words. Um, Same things with the New International Version and the Contemporary English Version, trying to modernize some of the words. And when you do that, you lose some of the original context because you're just translating word for word and then like making it more of a modern word whereas you're not looking at the original context. Um, And the original context, if you translate the context into English, um, you're going to get certain analogies or anachronisms um, that we have that they didn't have and that they wouldn't have meant by what they were writing. Uh, And so we acknowledge the the need for tradition in interpreting Scripture. But I will tell you, pretty much everything, like 100% of our beliefs as Catholics, in my own experience, can be found in some small or very large way, rooted in Scripture. You might have to return to the original language to see some of them, especially when it comes to things like Mary um, and stuff like that. You have to return to the original Greek to see certain verb texts, uh, verb conjugations and things to understand the, uh, the depth of what's being said. But um, that's also something to be aware of. Uh, another thing that's unique about Catholicism is that Catholicism has contributed to the scientific discoveries um, of mankind very, very heavily. Um, the Big Bang Theory um, was invented by a Catholic priest, first proposed by a Catholic priest, Father George Lemaitre, who then proposed it to Einstein. Uh, and still to this day, the Catholic Church um, promotes science. There's a whole scientific division of the Vatican. The Vatican has one of the largest observatories in the entire world. Um, the Church also, in its um, earlier days, was part of the um, institution of the scientific method and created the laws of evidence. Um, Gregor Mendel, the founder of modern genetics, was Catholic. Um, You know, the first female PhD in computer science in the United States was a Catholic sister. Um, The Catholic Church also started the first university system with cathedral schools and then formal universities for higher learning. Um, Not burying science or separating, but diving further into discovery. And that has never stopped. Uh, The belief that faith and science aren't um, interactive comes more from a fundamentalist Christian point of view of faith uh, and a very literalistic reading of the Bible. And that is where you do get a lot of problems with uh, reconciling what those interpretations imply versus what science has discovered. There are things that do not coalesce. But in Catholicism, you don't find that. Um... We also have um, other really cool historical figures. Santa Claus, obviously, is a Catholic saint. Saint Nicholas punched a heretic in the face in 325, which is pretty awesome. Uh, You can Google that. Um, And as I said, the Catholic Church is the most charitable organization in the entire world. Um, 
We also have a lot of different things called sacramentals or, you know, different um, things that help us pray or help us identify as Catholics. Um, If you want to know what the Catholic Church teaches, um, you can find the Catechism of the Catholic Church or the UCAT, both of which um, were compiled in the last probably 30 years. Um, And the UCAT is more a youth... uh, one that's translated for youth, more of a question-answer format. And then the Catechism of the Catholic Church um, is written in such a way that it just spells out all the doctrine in different sections of the Church. Um, And then as Catholics, we have a lot of different symbols as well. Uh, Catholics, we use the crucifix instead of the cross uh, because we want to remember, you know, that we paid a debt or that we owed a debt that we couldn't pay, but Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe. Um, And so... Did I say that right? We owed a debt we couldn't pay. So Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe. Yes. Um, That's from Scott Hahn. He says that when people ask him about the crucifix. Um, And we don't want to forget that. Um, It's not that we're perpetually crucifying Jesus and we want him to suffer. It's we want to remember what he did for us. And also, when you walk into any Catholic church, it's nice to see a symbol that your suffering is welcome there. Um, So you'll see uh, Catholics wearing crucifixes as a reminder of that, hanging them in their cars. You'll also see them praying the rosary, um, which is a devotion to Mary, but also has a crucifix on it or a cross on it. And that's just a series of prayers that help meditate on the events of Jesus' life, some of which are the sorrowful mysteries, which are his passion and death. Um, You'll see Catholics wearing scapulars, which are those small wooden uh, woolen squares, uh, and that's an act of penitence to help remember to pray anytime it irritates you. But also um, some people join what's called the Order of the Brown Scapular, which um, under certain practices that you commit to and under being blessed in that um, through those prayers of being initiated or vested into that order, um, if you commit to those practices and live a faithful life, you're considered to be preserved of um, the danger of hell. And that's pretty much true of any Catholic who commits to, you know, uh, the practices of Catholicism. It's not um, like a a magic thing that you just put on and you're not going to go to hell if you die, which some people do believe, and that is not correct. Um, We have a devotion to the Blessed Mother, to Mary. Um, Obviously, she was the mother of Jesus, and Jesus is a big deal, so she's probably also a pretty big deal, and that's pretty much the easiest way to describe why we love Mary so much. We don't pray to her directly or to any of the saints. We ask them to pray for us. And that's different from other religious traditions because most other Christian denominations see all prayer as worship, where we see all prayer as conversation or as relationship. And some of that is worship, but only the worship, uh, the worship is only directed to God. Um, But the conversation, the relationship um, can also be asked of, you know, intercessory prayer of our brothers and sisters in heaven, who we want to emulate, who we want to... um, try and be like, uh, and those are the saints. And so we have a rich tradition of saints in our in our faith. Uh, we also have a devotion to the Eucharist, which is something I mentioned before. Um, very few other religious denominations have any um, have any symbolic representation of the Eucharist. Um, only the Orthodox have a sacramental sense. Um, and then Episcopalians, some Lutheran denominations, and then some Christian denominations do some type of communion, but it's not sacramental. It's a symbol. We don't believe it's a symbol because Jesus told us it wasn't. He says, you know, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink in John chapter 6. And we want to take him at his word and not try and amend what he said because it makes us more comfortable um, or we personally don't understand. Uh, we use holy water to bless ourselves and remind us of our baptism. That's another sacramental. We see a lot of smells and bells in Catholicism, a lot of lighting of candles as a, remem- a commemoration of the light of Christ in us or in people that have died um, or in making an offering of, of prayer, requesting an offering of an intercessory prayer. Um, incense is often used to venerate things that are holy. Um, and of those things that are holy um, are saints, um, People who have lived on this earth um, who have died in such a way that um, their prayers after they have died have uh, resulted in miracles happening happening here on earth. Uh, Some of them have um, such supernatural abilities while they were alive um, that were recorded of being, you know, able to levitate, bilocate, um, have the wounds of Christ, Um, but some also um, having those abilities in death. Um, and being incorrupt, meaning their bodies never decayed, no matter when they died. You know, this isn't just a modern thing when we happen to have hermetically sealing technology. Um, there's a, uh, an incorrupt saint from, as, I think as early as the first century, but I think it's a third century soldier in the Vatican. He's unnamed, and you can see where his throat was slit, and he's still in his armor, but he looks like he died maybe like a week ago. 
Um, you know, he's not decaying like a normal body should have. Uh, and there's obviously that technology didn't exist to hermetically seal him or anything like that. And so we, we honor the saints and we ask them to pray for us because we want to be holy like them. We want to be the saints that God called us to be. Uh, and so you'll see Catholics with saint medals, with different patronages. Uh, certain saints did things in life, meaning that um, they're associated with certain jobs or practices. And if we need help in those areas, we ask for that particular saint's prayers. Um, and so you'll see saint medals or you'll see what's a more common trend, tiny saints, which are these little keychains um, of a lot of the different saints um, on people's keys or, or things like that. Um, and so that really is a kind of a, a breeze through of what we believe as Catholics. You know, we believe in a hierarchical faith that was started by Jesus himself in instituting Peter as the first pope, uh, or a sacramental church that is founded in the Eucharist. We believe in the veneration of the saints, Mary above all, and honoring her for what she uh, said yes to. Um, we believe in servicing the needs of others um, and that we're going to be judged by our actions, but our actions do not earn us heaven. We don't believe that works make us justified or worthy of salvation, um, but works make us righteous as we are responding to the free gift of salvation that comes to us only through the grace of God. Um, and so uh, faith and works is something that other, um, you know, Christian denominations and Catholicism often debate about. And I'll tell you what, when I was uh, doing some research for this podcast episode, I'll, I found a lot of different Catholic articles on faith and works that were written very scrupulously. Like people kind of know what they're talking about, but they, they use wrong vocabulary um, because there's different um, words like um, saved, salvation, um, justification, righteous, um, or uh, what uh, necessitates or delineates judgment. And sometimes people will use those things synonymously when they're not theologically synonymous. Uh, and so we are only saved by the grace of God. We are only saved by the grace of God. That is how we are found justified. However, in order to be righteous, to be found worthy of that justification before judgment when we die, we do respond in faith and in works. Uh, our faith cannot be empty belief. It needs to be lived in the way that we serve others. Um, but that does not earn us any great gifts in heaven. It doesn't earn us heaven at all. Um, heaven was earned for us by Jesus and Jesus alone in what he did for us on the cross in redeeming us. Um, and so we learn about the things that he taught us through scripture and tradition, and we live that out. Uh, we live those things out in hoping to attain uh, eternal life with him in heaven, most likely through the cleansing of purgatory, which is necessary for us to be completely purified of all the effect of sin and suffering that we experience on earth. Um, and so there are a lot of differences between Catholicism and other faith denominations. And so I hope that's beneficial for you. Maybe you learned something. Uh, maybe you want to dive deeper into a little bit of something. But I want to share with you very briefly a saint um, that you can pray for the intercession of when Catholicism might seem in its richness a little overwhelming um, or inexhaustible. And I'll tell you, it is inexhaustible. Um, the theology of Scripture alone, of one book of scripture um, could last you a lifetime to unpack and you wouldn't even scratch the surface. Um, and so I want to share with you a saint, Saint Dismas. Um, saint Dismas, you might not know the name of this saint, but you know who it is. Saint Dismas's feast day is on uh, March 25th. He's a patron of prisoners, funeral directors, um, San Dimas, California, which is a city named for him, and repentant thieves. And that might be a clue as to who he is. He is the good thief uh, next to Jesus on the cross who accepts Jesus right at that moment. And Jesus says, um, you know, uh, behold, I will be with you in paradise. Um, and when he asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom in Luke 23. Um, and so I wanted to just share briefly about, we don't know too much about him. Uh, we know that... Um, it doesn't say what crime that he committed in, in the Bible, um, but we know that he was a thief, and it must have been a pretty heinous crime for him to have gotten crucified. Um, his name comes more from tradition. It comes from a, a, a gospel written later that's not considered a canonical gospel in Scripture. The Gospel of Nicodemus uh, from the 4th century attributes the name Dismas to this person, and it's a Greek word that means sunset or death. Um, and at that moment, um, at his sunset or at his death, um, you know, that moving from light to darkness, or what could have been light to darkness, um, he reaches out in faith and recognizes that all of this is just, it, it doesn't matter if, if not for Jesus. Everything that we believe as Catholics is all centered on the fact that Jesus Christ is God, that he suffered for you, that he rose for you, 
and that he offers you that free gift of salvation to be in relationship with him and to live an amazing life, uh, to be the best version of yourself, to serve others and help them know the fulfillment and the salvation offered to them in Jesus Christ. Um, what great, what better gift is that, you know? And if it, if it all ended up being a lie, I wrote this in the blog I wrote um, uh, on the Psalm Reflection for this upcoming Sunday on our podcast or on our Instagram and our website this week. If it all were to be for nothing, Christianity still makes you happier, makes you better. It's proven that the practices of Christianity make people happier when they have that sense of spiritual fulfillment, when they have that sense of relationship and community and serving other people. But we know from our rich tradition and from logic and reason and history and everything coalescing in such a way, tracing it all the way back to this one branch of Christianity that existed for a thousand years before any other, that was founded on a real person, Jesus Christ, who was the only religious figure who ever claimed to be God, and he proved it because he rose from the dead. And so I pray, brothers and sisters, that your Catholic faith has been enriched by this podcast, that you learned something maybe that you didn't know before, and maybe you could share this with someone who has questions about Catholicism, maybe someone who's not Catholic, but they want to know, hey, what does your church believe in? Aren't all churches the same? They're really not. Catholicism is starkly different from every other branch of Christianity, um, and at least one or most likely a multitude of the things that I mentioned, plus countless others that we didn't have time to mention, but kind of stem from a lot of the things I spent some time on in this episode. So I hope that's beneficial for you, and I hope that Catholicism 101 helps you live out your faith uh, more fruitfully and in a more fulfilling way um, this Easter season. So please check us out on manafoodforthought.com. If you want to support our podcast on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, you can do that uh, by going to our website and clicking on the Patreon button. Uh, Please send us your feedback. You can write comments on the website. You can comment on our social media. Uh, You can reach out to us if you know us personally. Um, You know know how to get a hold of us. We love hearing uh, how this podcast is benefiting you and if you have suggestions for future episodes. Uh, But please follow us on Instagram, at manafoodforthought, all spelled out no spaces or symbols. And um, yeah, pray for us. We're praying for you. And until next time, we'll see you in the Eucharist. Bye.